0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Lanisha T. Adams is an award-winning education consultant and speaker focused on teaching students to put their knowledge of self at the center of all learning. With 20 years of experience in education at school, district, and state levels, Dr. Adams holds a PhD and is a certified coach on a mission to revolutionize how people learn. She is the author of the award-winning number one best-selling book on Amazon, Me Power. We love hearing more about learning, so please welcome Dr. Lanisha Adams to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller today let's get into it. First thing I want to know, whenever people are are education, you know, that's where my focus is going to be. So where and when did you
1: know you were headed in this direction? Direction of education. The direction of education in the field. uh, I think it started for me in middle school. I had an interesting experience thinking about who, who I was and what I wanted to do in the world. And I always, I always thought of them as separate things, you know, not just who I am is the role that I, am, that I have in the universe, but okay. hey, I, I might have some roles and then I have the identity, the essence of me. This is what I'm about. This is who I am. This is how I present in the world. And so I was trying to figure out at 13, how would I align the two, right? And I remember having this vision of um, wanting to be an architect because I like the orderliness of it. I knew a little bit about some of the work. And so we, my mom would take me to the library and uh, I got all these blueprint books. So we, we talked to the librarian and was like, well, what do you need to do in order to be an architect? Like, what skills do you need? That was the question. My mom really, my mom who had me at 16, who barely graduated high school, was very much adamant about, you know, you, you really need to have skills and the skills are what's going to change your life. And it's better if you're educated and you have skills. So we're at the library trying to figure out what skills as an architect actually need to have. And one of the major skills is being able to, you know, back in the day, uh, the blueprints and, you know, computer assisted design, the CAD software, all of that came later. But you you really need to know math, know, have a visual kind of spatial recognition, visual orientation for, for learning. There's so many skills where that's true. And so I'm trying to do these blueprints from this workbook and it just was not working out. And, uh, my mom said, look, you know, I don't know what kind of, I don't know how hard it's going to be for you to be an architect, but maybe you should try to find something where you are actually good at it. <laughs> <laughs> trying to, you know, forge your way away something that maybe, uh, maybe you'll have a harder pathway. And so I asked the librarian, I said, I know how to read well. I like language. Well, what can I do with that? And they pointed me to the linguistics section. I came across Chomsky. And then it was from that moment on that I realized I wanted to study this. I wanted to study the science of language and I wanted to be an educator. I wanted to talk about it. I wanted to teach on it. I wanted to be a professor. That was my that was my dream. And then I spent the rest of my adolescent, young adult life orienting around that goal. Man, that is wild. I can't even remember what I
0: was doing at that age. A career? <laughs> that, unbelievable. So talk yeah. about your mom a little bit. Cause that, that's amazing what she was able to do.
1: Did you, did you have other oh. things? Oh, no, I, my sister, she's 25. She'll be 26 uh, pretty soon. And, um, no, I grew up as an only child. So that was kind of amazing to, to have that experience and then still have a younger sibling. But my mom, you know, she, It's interesting. She really emphasized what I was good at when I was younger. I asked her about it now and she says, I taught her because I was very precise. I wanted to, my son, I have two sons, two and a half and four and a half. And one of them, Davidson, the oldest one, he is very much like this. He wants to know the sounds of everything. Oh, what are the letters? And what is this? And he's asking me. I'm not, you know, forcing it on him. I love it. And he's branching out to Russian and other languages. And so my mom said that I was like that, you know, I, I box. Okay. Well, and there's an X there. What, what else started? You know, what else ends an X? And so she would, saw that I had this fascination with language and then really just helped facilitate that. And that really opened the door for me to, to kind of be the leader of my own learning. And it's, it's funny. Like whenever she made me keep journals and write down the definition. So she's like, it's great. You can read. But do you comprehend? Can you explain it to somebody else? So I had to take notes and put me through all these processes where, I, you know, when you're a kid, you're like, man, I don't know about this. <laughs> then she told me, you know, you're going to have to do a lot of stuff that you don't understand, you don't like. You better learn to like it. So I really started getting into it. Then I started turning into games and making my other adults play in the family. And, you know, I was raised by the village because, you know, she's a teen mom. She's the youngest in her family. So I was a firstborn in that next line. And so there was a lot of uh, adult, older adult interact. My grandparents, my great grandparents were still alive. My grandfather had five other siblings. So being in the village with him, and I know you, you come from a large family. So, <laughs> you know, you can understand everybody having a hand in the rearing of the of the young child. So my mom, her role, and this is, she was very stern and she was very much about education, even though personally she wasn't educating herself but she knew what her skills were and that was the thinking of the time you know what your where your talents and skills are and then you really learn to master some of those in those areas and then that is how you make your money that's how you build your life And you know if you start from there I think the earlier you do it the better you'll be I still have that value actually
0: that's amazing I, you know I don't know how you can be challenged as a teen mom and still know what was important for your child to have, there's often so much stress around just trying to survive as a teen parent. So it's amazing that she had that ability. Kudos. And you benefited from it.
1: I give her that. I give her that. You know, she, there are a lot of things I have critiques about. We don't have the best relationship, but I, I no, I give credit where credit is due. And she, she was amazing and she was diligent on making sure I understood that if I wanted to have a good life, whatever that meant, uh, then I needed to be a good person and I needed to live with, with integrity. And that is a, a family value we have, but I benefited greatly from, from that strict, the strictness of what that requires yeah. and the fierceness of what that requires and the fear of God that came with that. If you go violate, it. and so I, you know, I, I'm like, I, all of that. You know, the listeners are probably going like, I know what she's saying. If you know what I'm saying, of course,
0: <laughs> of course. I never knew what that meant growing up. Fear God. I was like, that is so confusing to me. And then uh, you know, you learn the legacy of that, and it's like, wow, it's very extensive. Um, I want right? to ask you something about you know, your experience, you've been doing this for 20 years, you know, what do you know now that you didn't know 19
1: years ago about education
0: Mm. specifically?
1: Mm. I did not know that so much of what's wrong in education has to do with the allocation of resources and how the money that's allocated for said resources to improve education goes to small businesses and large businesses right it's a whole contracting game i man i wish i would have known that 19 years ago i mean it's, to have the insight that i have now about that it's encouraged me to really kind of split the mindset of a lot of my friends who are educators to branch out on their own oh and to create businesses to you know, get registered as a small business with federal government and their local governments to go after contracts because the money is there. And we often think we want to make change, especially if you're in the classroom, you want to make change by being in the system within, with change from within out. I think that you can do that for some time if that's what suits you, if you're not going to be stressed out, burnt out, whatever, uh, while you're doing it. But when it doesn't serve you and you still your passion and heart is still there to make change in that in community, then you can do that in alternative ways and there are plenty of people doing it, making millions of dollars who have more of a business background, who don't have the expertise, who don't have the heart and I wish I would have known that nineteen years ago that's that's quite a
0: nugget. Thank you for sharing that.
1: posted a quote
0: from Alice Walker, and i want I want to twist it up a little bit um so the quote is the most common way people give up their power is thinking they don't have any. I, I do believe in that. I'm challenged by it more and more as white supremacy reigns the way that it does. Because it almost sounds like when I reflect on it from a marginalized place, it sounds like, so if I just, I can just think it away, I can just believe it, it'll happen. And that's not really true. You need the inside information like you just shared. You, you need to know something. To challenge, to challenge a system that doesn't want you to have power. So uh, does that make sense to you? And how would you maybe change that up a little bit from an education lens? Or would you?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I very much uh, understand that idea. I think really what we have to talk about is this notion of power, right? What are, what are, we, what are we saying there? What kind of power. And it's really here that we should start because we can think about power as something that in, in a way that's where we have, we have less of it and somebody else has more of it because it's something that they possess, they own, they can have. Right. I think her quote is really getting at a notion that I talk about, which is challenging this, this idea of power over. That's one way and and true. White supremacy creates these structural conditions and it it's built into the very systems. And so even if people are dismantling or are working and actively trying to dismantle, it's still within that within that structure. I think we really have to think about what power is. And I I think power, there are some misconceptions about it, right? And in this idea of power over where somebody else has something you don't, there is this idea that, it, in, that it's finite, that it's a, it's a finite resource that can be distributed among, among people, right? And then there's the second idea of how it's like, we need approval to get it from somebody else. And then the last idea, which is I think getting at the political piece of this, which is my win means your loss. So if you gain power, then that means this other party loses power. And so there's always this fighting and since it's finite, there's not enough of it to go around this, like to believe in that idea, I think Mm -hmm. is very dangerous. Even if we're talking about political power, even if we're trying to get something that we don't have
0: Mm -hmm. coming
1: from where I come from, this idea that you can try to even get into a different position when literally everybody in the family, you know, isn't college educated or Mm -hmm. beyond that. Like, who do I think I am to even have that idea? I think this kind of thinking that things are sticks is problematic and it's embedded in this notion of, of what power over and, and power as a possession means. And so I really, I really spend a lot of time uh, moving outside of that. And the reality is that that's a, that's an energy. That's a way of bringing yourself to it. But then there's the structural reality that There are inequalities and some groups have less power. (laughs) Um, I really like the way you move that around. I
0: like the reframing. I'm all about reframing. Reframing the concept and deconstructing it in a way that does make it manageable because, you know, the racial trauma, I talk about it at least once every show. The racial trauma is something that, you know, it's the bad gift you didn't want that keeps on giving. And so when I'm working with kids or with clients, I'm always trying to think of, what are other ways that people who come from the global majority can begin to think about how and what we need to have, you know? It's like, for example, you know, I no longer say things like survivors, you know, we're survivors, or I no longer say things like resilience, like all these things reminding of the limited perspective of what they mean, you know? And so how do we change the language and how we perceive it? They begin to make it more manageable. So I really, really appreciate what you just shared. Thank you so much. Mm. I'm going to jump to your website website for a minute. So the website for your business, Ed Linguist. Did I say it right? Ed Linguist.
1: Mm-hmm. I didn't say it right. Ed, okay. Ed Linguist. Ed Linguist. Educa- educator and Linguist. No,
0: God. I get it's it. Tricky. I just didn't want to screw up how to say it. And the minute it came to say it, I messed it up. Ed Linguist. Everybody
1: says it's a terrible name because nobody can say it, which is probably true. Well, I, I, it's unique. Well,
0: <laughs> I, well, I also like to think of it as it's going to stay on the mind because you're, you're trying to wrestle with how to pronounce it correctly. So so it's twofold. But and, and see, I did it again. And Linguist Solutions. There you go, man. OK, so. You said, we incorporate lean, agile principles to build self-directed, cross-functional, high-performing teams that deliver results. I'm gonna need you to break that down. I want people to really understand what that means.
1: Oh man, yes. Okay, so it's in plain language. I'm like, man, you pointed out how you need to improve the copy on that website. That's a little, that's a little woo-woo. But lean and agile, right? Yeah. So this notion that when we're planning, And you're thinking about change. I I was trained using what's called the waterfall method. So you want to know point A to Z and really map out everything. Okay. In an agile approach, you don't need to uh, approach it that way. We have a clear, clearly identified problem we want to solve. And then what is the very first few small steps that you can take to go and solve that? And then you have a system of change to support it, right? So you don't need to map out by April, I need to have all of these steps. And by this because you spend a lot of time front end planning with this, what's called a waterfall method okay. of you need to understand all the little pieces that are there. And one little thing can change everything. So all the hours that you put in up front, it's really not going to uh, help facilitate change. So really what this agile and lean approach means, and that's from the 10th world, but really what that kind of language looks like is really having a system of support that have clearly identified steps and processes that you can replicate no matter what the solution you're aiming to get. So if something happens and, you know, you need to adapt, it makes it so much easier because I've been, you know, in the education game. If people make all these plans, they want to stay fixed to those plans. You know how much buy-in that you have to get when you're doing all of this planning and then you have, I mean, all the pros and cons and everybody kind of challenging everything and you spend months, sometimes even like years trying to have a very solid plan and you can't just walk away from it, right? So people don't even want to change their thinking about when something isn't working. So because they planned it, they rather stick to it. So that's really what this uh, idea of planning and it's, it's a way of thinking that's very different. It requires you to be you know, you, you can be really fixed with this idea of, "Hey, there's a problem, a clearly identified problem I want to solve." But the way in which we go about it is is very I mean it, it's highly adaptable, right? Mm-hmm. So we can make this more concrete with an example. So I had a client that you know was at the university and they have all these graduate students who aren't finishing. Over like 50% of people getting graduate degrees are not completing them. So they admit people, and then half of them don't even go through. And they keep paying their tuition, right, year over year until they time out. This is kind of a nasty stat. It makes me very uncomfortable, and it, it upsets me. And so this client that came to me said, hey, you know, how can you help us with these students and I don't want to out the university. Okay. But they were like, how can you help us with the students who aren't finishing? We need them to finish their degree. And I said, well, it, it, finishing their degree is your main outcome, but what is it that the students need? What do they want to do? And then I learned that because the admissions process was so low level, they didn't it really, wasn't competitive. They're admitting all these people Folks were thinking they could get a PhD, and they didn't even want to do anything with it. They just wanted it because they, you know, they wanted to do something, have that those letters behind their name. So I said, well, it'd be good if we looked at the problem from a different lens, right? Where we, instead of thinking of it in a one, an outcome-based perspective, how do we then help those students who are not necessarily there? Maybe they're not committed. Maybe they are. Maybe they timed out. Maybe we we don't know. So we really have to go to the student body materially to see what is the problem as they see it, because the administration's problem is like, look, you're not completing the students who are coming in. That is a problem. But I flipped it and then I convinced them that first, let's start solving the problem by talking to the actual student body, the demographic of students that you are problematizing. What do they say is the problem? And then once we figure that out, then we could actually solve their problem. So this is a kind of lean and agile way, a very concrete example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, but I I like to philosophize it probably too much. <laughs> and welcome to
0: academia. <laughs> no, that was really helpful because I I got a lot of good pieces in there. But I was like, well, am I understanding the intention? Right, I'm all about intention versus outcome. So that's why I wanted you to explain. I think that's very helpful. What is your team? do for clients that is, say that their competitor doesn't do? What do you all do that, that your competitors don't do? Or what do you do better than your competitors in this, in this field?
1: Yeah, I think it's really leaning into this listening in a way that is different. I think we listen to our clients. They are like, hey, we really want to solve this problem. And if it's an organization. The way that they want to solve the problem is always because of some external requirement. It's not, it's not intrinsic to the people who are experiencing it. And I uh, have a background in institu- institutional ethnography and I'm very much motivated by dialectical materialism, this idea that, you know, you really got to go with where the action is happening. And we can have all these theories and all these philosophies and whatever. That's fine. But until you are actually on the ground in it, you can't really, you don't really know. And you have too many assumptions. I mean, what makes me and my team different in our approach is that we we really take this idea of checking the assumptions at the door. Like we really check them and then we verify, hey, these are maybe some assumptions we have. But if you don't ask, you don't know. And we really have to start any problem solving from that position. But it's a people-oriented approach. It's a it's a people-centered approach that requires us to listen. And you have to kind of hold back on your expertise because sometimes that might not really go with the... That might not really fit. And that I think that's what's the main differentiator. And I'm learning that more and more as I do other things, other projects and... Whenever somebody looking at me weird, like I wasn't expecting you to come at the problem, solve the problem from that direction. I'm like, well, who have you been working with and what was their approach? Uh, And I'm like, well, why did you, why didn't you stick with them? You want to stick with that result? Okay. You want a different result? Okay. Let's try something different.
0: Okay, so, so many of the things that you said really resonated with me. You know, as a therapist, your biggest mistake is when you go into the room as the expert. Um, and so that's, you know, I like that. And then the act of listening is what you're describing. And that's the same thing. It's not always jumping in, jumping in, particularly to, you know, sort of tell the client what this means versus listening and, and helping the client figure it out for themselves. And, that, and, and that's a grassroots, that's what I consider grassroots approach. And you have a, a grassroots approach with a, a corporate lens for structure, which is an interesting combination. That's very interesting. So do you work most? You know how I got
1: that? No. You know how I got that? How? I got it starting my journey in community organizing. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, I learned about, you know, being part of my community and mainly focused on voting. But also there were some issues happening. I grew up in a housing project in Long Beach, California. Carmelitos uh, still there. It's different now, though, because I went back. I was like, this ain't what it was. Mm. Um, But Uh, There's a lot of things that were happening in the community. And then there were some organizers who were like, we need to let, you know, these housing folks know this ain't going to work in the way that this is structured and how, you know, there was just a cesspool of a lot of drug and whatever element happening. And it was cool to be part of that as a young person and to see that even though uh, everybody was living in the housing projects that was part of this, and fighting for the change that there were people who were like, no, y'all gonna hear me and this will shift and change. That kind of spirit, that kind of energy, that kind of, I don't know what the outcome is gonna be, but I ain't gonna stop until you hear what I have to say. Mm. There is so much fortitude in that. Like once you get a taste of it, this is the you know activation and it's politicizing. Like, I'll just call it what it is. It's a form of being politicized that nobody can't tell you anything especially when there's power in numbers yeah that's it and so that kind of way of thinking is really what what i'm i mean that's my orientation really for life and i'm held fast to it i've adapted it to different contexts but really that's where it comes from this notion that you know i i may not actually haven't the answer because i don't know what the genesis of the problem is you hire me to do something that you think I know how to do, but do you actually know where the genesis of this problem resides? And let's find that. And I can use my skills as a researcher, I can use my skills as a good listener, as a coach to really draw that out. And then we go from there. But I really am for the, what? who aren't we listening to? Whose voice isn't represented? That's my orientation for pretty much everything.
0: I love that. So are most of your clients individuals, corporates, corporations, organizations? What does that look like?
1: Most are individuals through the university. So I've, uh, over the years, I'm going on year eight in business with Edling, and doing coaching and consulting. And so in the earlier years, I was doing B2C, really focused on getting individual clients. I didn't know anything about, about business because I was an educator and, yeah. you know, we're not trained like that. I was an educator via a community organizer anti-capitalist so what do i know about money like zero True. Uh, then i got then i got smarter once i started working in government and seeing how the money moves and i was like wait a minute like this is a this is a racket so i was like what if i became a contractor a federal contractor what if i became you know what, what if i started trying to do what i see people doing that i had so much angst about and so instead of complaining why don't i just try to move with in that crowd but not like them not of them but in that space can i make a livelihood cuz i'm getting i have to deal with it i'm never going to escape it mm-hmm. so what side of the table do i want to really sit on and that's really uh how i started thinking about how to move but the, the clients the university clients getting those contracts becoming a government contractor working with like the national science foundation for example and then the other nonprofits I'm more focused now on the organizational components because I feel like I can reach more people like that. Yeah, uh, One-to-one, it's, it's much harder.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Again, another great nugget, federal contracts. Who knew? I never considered it. Because, you know, right? So the global majority, you know, for the most part, particularly African-American, I mean, historically, we're anti, you know, systems. So who would think to go in and create a piece of the system? and make it work for you. I mean, to get into
1: a piece of the system and make it work for you, which is what you did. So that's pretty incredible. That's that's another great note. Mm-hmm. Thank you. There's a lot of money in that. And also for being a minority certified small business, a woman owned minority business. And there's just so many folks. And this is why Trump came up with that PPP load and helping his friends and all of the business community because they knew that they could filter the money to help the small businesses. But if you look at who primarily got that money, it's like, where is that allocation for our community? So the Biden administration did actually allocate money specifically for our community. I think there are still loopholes around it, though. There's always loopholes. Loophole. I, I feel like at least there is some consideration of, you know, making sure that we can take part in that. But can we you the systematic things that are required it's a lot of paperwork and a lot of red tape. Know. you know government you like it, 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 they, they make it so difficult i'd rather i'd rather
0: proceed to your book and than- <laughs> <laughs> now, now let's proceed to your book okay yeah I want, I I want to I before we you. end on that up note so your interactive blog was getting hit like 800 visitors a week is that what turned into the book or can you talk about that process a little bit
1: no uh, you know the the book so when I thought about what kind of change I want to see in education I felt like there's a lot of discussion about empowerment and not a lot of explaining of like what does that actually look like what does that actually mean and because of my history and focus and obsession kind of with language I was really, I've been bothered by this for pretty much the whole time. But I would take no I would make notes to myself about, okay, well, you want to do a linguistic analysis. Okay, look at some of the psychological literature about individual collective empowerment. And there's some really cool stuff about how they've measured what this looks like in practice. Okay, But the definition part of it, right, for English is that it was missing. And so uh, I started writing the book from that place of like, If if I have an issue with this word empower this transitive verb, what does it mean and why do I really have an issue with it? And that's what started my journey in writing about about uh, writing the book. And then the other piece of if if I think thought about if I close my eyes and I say this is the change I want to see, I want to see a new model of education that's not just focused on schooling, but that's focused on empowerment through learning. No matter where you are. So how do we do that? How, how do we do that? And that's the question that I sought to answer with, with writing the book. Did you,
0: did you actually feel like you answered those questions at the, by the end?
1: I think so. I think I raised more questions. But I feel like the answer of how we do that is we, we center knowledge of who we are mm-hmm. in that entire process. So in the educational system, you're going after information, knowledge, knowledge. But is that really, is all this information, is that really knowledge? What use of it is to us? Not students, us, who we are, me, you. Okay. Like, is our our background, our heritage, the things that we know and and we've come to understand through life is that prioritized in said system i think in a blanket way it is it isn't no i so
0: agree with you that it's not and furthermore i believe that you know each teacher also has their own side agenda because like you said they bring all of themselves into the classroom so that's getting you know that's infiltrating that system in a way that that the kids don't even know so it is important to re look at it and reclaim it in a way i love that idea now the book is me power and you did, you already spoke, uh, about a piece of it that I saw that you had uh, written somewhere. I don't remember, but it was basically, you know, the journey begins with you. I'm going to not say it the way you did it, but the journey begins with you and self-knowledge, like me, myself and self-knowledge. And again, I have to go to marginalized communities, right? Where I think when you have access, you are able to figure out who you are, center yourself sooner, right? When I, when I worked in affluent community, you know, in kindergarten, kids were telling me what, what, uh, college they were going to, you know, in and, and more marginalized communities, you don't have that access as, as quickly. So I love the idea of, of centering oneself, you know, both in, in therapy and in just day to day life. How do you, how do you do that? How do you, what is your idea about empowering people to understand that or looking at people can find their own, their own power?
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, So much of of my life, and I don't think like this, but if I look at the origin of where I come from and where my people are still, right? And how, where I'm from and the evolution of change, if economically the people in my family are still in the position that they were in when I was born, you know, 40 some odd years later, it's still the same. I think I had that. Foundation. I had the foundation that you talk about, where maybe I didn't have access, uh, and I don't know if I had access. I think I I, I don't know if I believe you need access. Mm. I think you you need to have the have the idea that everything that you need, like literally everything you need for making change in your life, you have within you. I can't control. I don't have any um, influence over the genesis of how I got here. You know, I, I don't, I, I, that, I mean, and that's true for anybody in any situation that they can't control. And it's interesting because I wrestled when I was writing the book, I wrestled with wanting, not wanting it to sound like every other white self help book where they're like, just, pick yourself up just do this you are this believe you are this you know and all these little <laughs> phrases that i struggle with that but you know it's interesting i started the book in the first in-, in the introduction talking about an experience that disempowered me that had me on my knees where i didn't even believe that i could do my lifelong dream and some people might laugh because it's like yo you you're 13 you want to be <laughs> PhD studying linguistics and you black and none of your people are educated and nobody had a PhD so I, I clearly came up with that on my own of my own accord like that was a unique thing for me Manisha now I had this dream and I ended up you know doing all these things to pursue that I, I I'm not kidding when I say I oriented my entire life around it wow. and the pursuit of this goal and then when I was in my 20s and I'm at Columbia. And I encountered this professor who let me, you know, she made me jump through all these hoops. And, and I was thinking for like a whole year, I was going to work with this person. And you know how it is in academia. They, it's, it's like apprenticeship model. So you got to get approval and they looking at, are you smart enough? Are you this enough? Are you whatever enough? And so I, I felt like I was jumping through all the hoops. I apply, I get denied. I sent an email. I was, it took me two weeks to come up with a gusto to ask this professor. Hey, you know, I thought I was—I was for sure getting in here. Why didn't you accept me? And then she said, "Oh, come and talk to me. Come, come to my office and talk to me." So I said, "Oh, I'm really going to get some insight." I walked in there. That woman said, "People like you don't be- belong in a PhD. What? Like, light lights out." And more, more importantly, I didn't admit you. But where else didn't you get admitted that year? I had only applied to like Harvard and all the top schools. I didn't get in. No, I at that moment, I didn't get in nowhere. So I was sitting and she, I don't know how she knew that, but she was just eating, she was just getting me, you know? And then so I'm sitting there and I'm like, my heart starts, you know, my chest starts caving in and I was like, wait, what? And she's like, if, if you don't, don't mince my words, you don't belong here, but you especially should not even try because you are supposed to be working. You're supposed to be working for somebody. You're supposed to be doing, doing work, not creating intellectual uh, work in the world and pretty much get out. And so when I left that, the, you know, I mean, it wasn't that long. I think it was like 10 years later, right from the time I came up with that idea, mm-hmm. but I'm 20 in my early 20s with this idea. Sure. She, she just ran it all over and threw it out. And uh, whatever. I think about that moment. I mean, I think about the feeling I had when she did that and the place I was in for years, <laughs> for at least three years, mm-hmm. not even believing that I could do it. Because be- before, what do I know? I'm trying to come up with something and do something that literally I don't know any one person who did. Yeah, And so I had a kind of a blind idea like, oh, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Then I encounter someone and they say, Oh, Yo, you not only am I rejecting you from it, but I'm going to crush your spirit and the audacity that you have to even pursue it. So when I talk about power and how somebody else holds it over me, I bought into that notion. I stayed with that notion. This idea that this individual can kill my entire spirit for something I want to do for my life. Like, how, how could that happen? And so I feel like when we're, when we're talking about This idea of where you are, wherever you are and wherever you're trying to go. It's almost like blind faith. It's a belief. It's a fortitude that even when the world is telling you, you can't and there's a no, if you, if that is so important to you and you want to go after and you want to do it, do it. It's, it's like, it's, it's almost mad. Because there's no reason why. But if I were to die tomorrow, and I didn't go after achieving this goal, would I be made whole? Would I would I ha- would I have died whole? Would I have died, pers- like knowing I accomplished and I tried to and I successfully did something that was meaningful for me, and it could be whatever. I don't think that if I would have walked away and gave it up, I think I would still be whining and complaining about it today.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, look, every perspective is important. So I appreciate you sharing yours. I really do. And I want people to know where to find you. So please let people know where Ed Linguist Solutions. <laughs> my whole mouth is going left on me when I try. <laughs>
1: I think folks can find me. Just go uh, Ed Linguist, easy linguist on Instagram or social. And more importantly, on my website, com. You can join in on my newsletter and download a free chapter if you want to read more about this notion of me power as in power and really connect. And I'm, I'm so happy to have been invited here to speak with you and to off the cuff, get involved where I'm like, wait, where's the time? I'm like, wait, it's over? Like, oh man.
0: <laughs> I know it goes really fast and I, I appreciate all of your knowledge, your experience. It's really important that so many of us show up to offer different perspectives, because no one is more right than the other. But if we don't start shaking things up, then I mean, the real question for you and in, in, in the time of, of, of consciously trying to change the narrative and challenge systems, do you think we'll ever truly see equity in education? And ever is a long time. So what do you think?
1: In our current setup? No. Okay, fair. I'm going to burn it. The system ain't going to change unless we make it change. And listen, we have been trying to make it change. So if we kind of need to I mean, do something a little bit more anarchist like to actually affect change, then go for it. But listen, the last thing I want to say about this is I, I'm a big fan of Battlestar Galactica. And in that, you know, the machines destroyed, man create machines, the machines destroyed, destroyed the uh, Earth They got to go out in space and they're on these spaceships. There's no governments. There's no nothing. Guess what the people do? They recreate what was destroyed. And so I really, as we talk about systems and changing them, I really want us to implore us to take a look at who we are and how we show up in said system and what we do to contribute, to create, maintaining it, to maybe being complicit in it, and to really focus on our humanity and our role in, in it as people. So I think that's very important because we start othering and it's like, if I was in this position, it would be different. And, and then it, will it, you know, are we really categorically changing who we are, how we show up and how our relationship to said system? Then maybe we get to see something different, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to end. I also think what you're describing is good trouble and people are not always equipped to get into good trouble, but we have to challenge each other to do it. I think that's very important. Thank you so much for your knowledge. The time really flew. I could definitely see us engaging in this conversation again. And thanks for being so flexible and easy to figure this out. It's not easy when everybody's doing a few different things. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Take care. I'll be in touch. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.